I'm not sure if I can spell hard act to follow, but that was a diff this is the definition of it right now, right? Um, can I just have a quick show of hands? How many of you actually came to hear a sermon today? <laughs> Put your hand down, Arshif. You did not. <laughs> I, no, I, I really, this has become very clear to me. Um, regular Sunday, kind of spotty attendance. Everybody kind of files in from the back, wide open at the front. Today, I mean, it's packed. You're, you're all... Got your cameras out, lining up at the front. This is uh, very discouraging for me. <laughs> um, no, that was, <laughs> that was wonderful. And as you came in today, many of you made mention that uh, you, you look forward to this every year. You love to see the children. Uh, love to see them, particularly at Christmas time. I don't know a child who doesn't love Christmas. And as much as children love Christmas, it's... It's uh, as many as they are, there are just as many uh, adults who dread Christmas, right? Um, we see the children, the smiles and the, the laughter and the joy, and we see their love for Christmas. And yet for many, many people, Christmas comes around and it's uh, mixed feelings. Uh, there are many things going on uh, in us emotionally as we, as we think of the season. I think one of the things is that children have a sense of expectation of the ideal. And there is that, that hope and that, that, uh, yeah, that, that anticipation that Christmas is going to be wonderful. And somewhere along the line, as we grow older, there is uh, some reality sets in that there can be a gap between the, the hope and some of the uh, reality that we feel. At Christmas, it's particularly a time when you're saturated with images of uh, perfect families and doting couples and wonderful children and everything is perfect and wonderful. And many people can feel like outsiders to that perfect image. Uh, Christmas can feel like it's for other people, uh, for, for someone else, uh, just, just not for me. And so the question... I ask this morning as we come to our text is, how can we prepare for Christmas when it feels like Christmas is for someone else, when it feels like it's for other people? How do we prepare our hearts for a celebration when it feels like we are outsiders to uh, that, ce that, that celebration and we're bracing for disappointment? It's interesting to me that as we have, we began in looking at Luke's gospel and the message of Christmas that he records for us, that it's exactly with that question that he begins his Christmas account. He starts with two outsiders, people who don't look like Christmas special material. They don't look like the kind of people that we would hold up at Christmas of, uh, and uh, point to and celebrate. It reminds us that God saves his Christmas miracle for outsiders. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and we'll look together at verses 5 to 7. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. 
Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth were a couple that I believe felt that God had kind of passed them by, kind of overlooked them. They were good people, and it says that they were faithful to God. They were righteous before him. It just didn't feel like God noticed, didn't feel like God saw. Zechariah was a Levite priest, but priests in the first century were notoriously poor. Uh, Givings weren't very strong. People weren't very faithful in giving to the temple. And so many, uh, in fact, most uh, priests in the first century would have to uh, find other jobs. They, they didn't have any inheritance of their own, uh, so they would have to uh, rent out uh, land on a farm and, and work that land to try and make some extra income. Uh, but they, they were poor. They also, uh, we learn, had no children. And although there were many things that that entailed, particularly in the first century, that meant that as you were getting to the age that Zechariah and Elizabeth were getting to, you didn't have anyone to support you, to provide for you. And so without inheritance, without land, without children, they were looking forward to a very uncertain future. Zechariah and Elizabeth might have felt like Christmas was for other people, like they were outsiders, and yet they were the very ones that God chose to reveal the Christmas story to, to begin his Christmas message for. That choice was deliberate, I believe, to show us and uh, everyone since Zechariah and Elizabeth came that God has a special heart and concern for those who would consider themselves on the outside, people who would feel like life had somehow passed them by. God saves his Christmas miracle for outsiders. And God wants us to know that he hasn't forgotten our prayers even when we have forgotten those prayers. He knows the cries of our heart and won't let them go. Watch how he shows this to Zechariah in verses 8 to 14. It says this, Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, there wasn't anything normal about this day for Zechariah. Uh, In his time, there were some 18,000 priests, and they were divided into 24 divisions. He was in the division of Abijah. So with so many priests, they actually only got called up for duty in Jerusalem twice a year for one week at a time. So his time had come. We know that only the high priest went into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement once a year, But on the other days, the priests would go in and they would burn incense in the holy place and they would do that before the morning and evening sacrifices. This was a great honor and many priests would go their entire career without ever having been called up to service and to to actually go into the holy place. They would would serve in various roles and responsibilities uh, around the rest of the, the temple grounds, but many of them would never never be chosen to go into the holy place. 
It was a lottery system. Once your name had been called once, that was it. We know that Zechariah is an old man by the time that he has been chosen. That's, what he, that's how he describes himself. And so by this point, he has gone his entire adult life having been heard twice a year, not chosen, not chosen, not you, somebody else. He's heard that all of his life. And finally, on this day, he's heard, now it's your turn, your turn to go into the holy place. So he goes into the holy place and an angel appears to him. And you see by his reaction something about how he perceives God. Because when he sees the angel, it's troubling to him. He thinks it must be judgment. Nothing good ever happens to Zechariah where God is concerned, he feels. And so there's this sense of, uh, of trouble and confusion and perhaps even dread. God must have singled him out for further disgrace. And then he hears those words, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. My prayer has been heard? Sounds too good to be true. Sounds like, you know, it's some impossible thing that he couldn't even imagine. Zechariah's name means remembered by God. And as a young child, when he was singing in little musicals like we were watching today, he probably felt proud about that name, remembered by God. But then as he grew older and he experienced circumstance after circumstance where he just felt that he wasn't being remembered by God. He wasn't having the child that he longed for. He wasn't being chosen for those special responsibilities that only some people got chosen for there would have been a sense of dread of that name. His name, remembered by God, probably felt like a cruel joke. He was probably mocked for his name because uh, to, to, uh, often uh, inability to have children was accompanied by disgrace, and, and, and people likely snickered at his name. And here he he. He has the, uh, the words from the angel that his prayers have actually been heard, that he has been, in fact, remembered by God. Now, what prayer was the angel talking about anyway? Did the angel really say, your wife, Elizabeth, will, have, will bear you a son? Like, Zechariah and Elizabeth had stopped praying for that prayer years and years ago. They had long since given up on praying for a child. His wife was ready to move into assisted living, and none of them would have anywhere on their radar, oh, we'll keep praying for a child. No, they had long since forgotten that prayer. And we hear that God hadn't forgotten it. God had, in fact, remembered them. They had shed tears as they prayed for a child when they were younger. They'd spent their lives attending baby showers for other people's children, for nephews and nieces and neighbors. Had God really seen their tears? Had he really remembered their cries, their prayers to him? Christmas is a reminder that God hasn't forgotten your prayers, even if you have. 
But when you're used to being left out, it can be hard to accept things being any different. Zechariah reminds us not to let our past get in the way of our future. So often in life, it's easy to give up, to settle, to assume that you're kind of done. There's not really anything left to hope for. There's not really anything to trust God for or to ask God for. Assume that your life is pretty much fixed. Zechariah reminds us not to let our past get in the way of our future. Notice how he responds to the angel and the news that his prayers have been heard. I'll read from verses 18 to 20. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. See, Zechariah can't believe it. He hears the words of the angel, and he just can't believe those words. He will not believe those words. He won't believe them, I believe, because his past pain has been so great that He's not the type to get his hopes up about anything anymore. He stopped believing. Disappointment for him has been too painful. And he's found that it just is easier to settle for miserable than to believe in the impossible. Zechariah's got a problem with faith, but I've got to admit, I find him a little endearing. He's got this wisdom about him that uh, I I think we can learn from. Notice what he says in verse 18. I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I mean, if you're, guys, if you're, this is something you, you, this is like a verse you may want to memorize. I'm old, but my wife, she's just advanced in years, right? (laughs) I mean, just the language here is, is brilliant. I love it. But... These are the words of a wise husband. Now, the answer to his question about how he can know it's true is obvious, right? The way that he knows it's true is that there is an angel in front of him speaking to him. This doesn't happen all the time. As far as proof goes, this would be about as strong a proof as you would normally look for. It's a pretty strong sign. But in Zechariah's case, it's not enough. What else are you going to do? How are you going to prove it to me? So the angel makes Zechariah unable to speak for the next nine months. That would get the message across. That would pretty much confirm things for him. It also gives him time to think about what God has said and the faith that he asks of him. He has time to rethink his understanding of who God is. He, it gives him time to rethink his understanding of God's promises, how he has responded to them, how he has given up on asking for more, expecting more, really given up on God in many ways. When he finally does speak, his first words are praise to God. He's filled with joy and gladness that the angel had promised, and he's holding his son, a baby boy. This baby boy would grow to be a great prophet. 
And it was a prophet who would introduce people unmistakably to the joy and the salvation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that we had our children just so beautifully singing about. Never again would Zechariah let his past get in the way of of his future. Now, I think you probably realize, if you have read through this story before, there is some work to do to figure out, what do we make of this? What are we supposed to take from a story like this? What are we to learn from it? We know that John's birth was a sign. It wasn't a sign, though, that God gives us everything that we want, right? There were many people whose prayers didn't get answered exactly the way that they were hoping for, either in the first century or today. But the fact is that when Jesus came, he announced good news that was so good, many people felt this news seems too good to be true. When Jesus came announcing salvation and forgiveness and eternal life and called called to people to receive that good news only by simple faith, people thought, give me a sign or something. Like, you got to... You've got to show me something to, to prove to me that that's true. It just felt too good to be true to many people. And the same is true today. Many, many were tempted in those days to think that that eternal life, that salvation that Jesus came to bring was for other people. That surely they were outsiders to this message. Many people think the same thing today. And so if you are here this morning thinking that where God is concerned, where God's plan is concerned, even where Christmas is concerned, you just feel like an outsider. You feel like you are somehow passed over in God's plan, God's purposes, and in God's love. If you feel like you're one of the forgotten ones, The message here is that God will never forget us, that we never stand outside of his love and his attention. He's heard every prayer that we've prayed. He's felt every tear that we've shed. And we're reminded that Zechariah's name, remembered by God, is in a sense true of all of us. He has remembered us. He has noticed us. This Christmas, if you feel like giving up or settling, know that with God, your past need not determine your future. That we look to God in faith and expectation, asking, for, asking him, for his, him to reveal what his plan is for our lives. We ask him to guide us, and we do so with some of the hope and anticipation that we learned from our children this morning the sense of childlike faith in a God who is good, who can be trusted, who can be called upon and rested in, that we can look to him in anticipation for all that he would do. This passage also reminds us that all of God's good Christmas gifts come by faith. We receive them by believing, trusting. And so as we welcome the Christmas child we do so with belief, with confidence in him and the salvation that he came to bring for us. 
we ask him to direct our lives. And we do so with a sense of anticipation, ready to be surprised, ready to be brought to wonder again. Because Christmas reminds us that that's the kind of God he is. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing miracles of Christmas. And I thank you that none of us are outside, of, outside them. I pray that even this morning you would draw near someone who feels far. I pray that you would show your Christmas miracle again this morning and lift someone up who feels forgotten. Give them the confidence that you have indeed heard them and that you care. Father, would you give us faith to trust where you would lead us, especially as you lead us to Jesus Christ, to his his salvation, to his plan for our lives, to his will, that we might in all things glorify you. We pray in the mighty name of the Christmas child, our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.